The Rappaport Diamond Podcast is brought to you by Rappaport Academy. Know your industry. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, the podcast that reflects on the brightest subjects in the industry. I'm your host, David Ehrlich, and today we'll be talking about that greatest of markets, the Red Dragon, China. With the year of the dog just around the corner, hopes are high that the diamond industry will get its tail wagging with a big Chinese New Year. Today, we'll try to demystify that most fascinating of places by looking at the markets, people, and trends that have defined the diamond industry in the Far East nation. We also have an interview with Jennifer Hebner, jewelry journalist, blogger, frequent Rappaport magazine contributor, and not incidentally dog lover. We'll be asking her about what it was like at the latest Centurion, JCK, and AGTA shows. And our very own Avi Kravitz has his report from the International Diamond Week to share. Get ready to jet set. We're traveling around the world in 40 minutes. Walking us through the Chinese marketplace is our panel of experts from Rappaport's editorial team, led by our incomparable editor-in-chief, Sonia Esther-Sultani. So, Sonia, tell me about your favorite dog... So my favorite dog is not my own dog, but it belongs to my in-laws. She's called Wendy. She is 13 years old. She is a character. She could have been the actor studio's uh, lead if there was such a thing for canine creatures. She adores my husband. Sometimes I think she hates me, but <laughs> I won't hold that against her because she's extremely wise and she's she's quite cute. She, she really, really entertains me. But I'm happy to bring her back to my in-laws usually after the dog sitting sessions. Also here, Rappaport's news editor and senior analyst, Avi Kravitz, who dwarfs us in height and in class. <laughs> what do you think about pooches, Avi? Firstly, there was a compliment and an insult all in one, so kudos to you. Um, <laughs> but uh, thank you. As far as um, my favorite dogs go, I love dogs, but I, I don't own one. I'm living in, a, in an apartment in Tel Aviv. It's not so easy to take care of one. But I, I stumbled across a, um, a dog just sort of staring into the, into the abyss the other day on my street corner. I took a photo of him and put him on Instagram. And suddenly I had this flood of Instagram followers. Um, hashtag <laughs> dog lovers. Um, hashtag poodle. Proudly uh, into poodles. You know. So it piqued my interest. And I do have uh, an Instagram crush on a certain pooch. His name's Archer. Um, it's a little bit of a shout out to Catherine, who's our global sales manager in the Rapport office. And the Instagram account is all about Archer, which um, has the most adorable golden retriever that um, has become a highlight of my day. But just before I finish, it's interesting that on a podcast about diamonds, which is a girl's best friend, we're talking about dogs, which is a man's best friend. So there must be some, there must be some, uh, some connection that maybe Joshua can help us with. There. Maybe he can. Because, of course, we have with us our news reporter and the man who has us all barking with laughter, Joshua Friedman. So, Joshua, dogs? Um, I'm actually not such a big fan of dogs. Um, in fact, when I'm walking down the street and I see a dog, I do tend to cross the road. They do scare me a little bit. Um, I, I got on a bus here in, in Tel Aviv a couple of days ago, and I was just about to sit down and realized that the guy sitting there had a, a dog with a muzzle that had fallen off. 
So I think that gave me good reason to not sit down next to him. And it may run in the family. When I was younger, we were once uh, asked to look after our neighbour's dog one evening, and he ran away and we lost him. They found him, but uh, that was the end of our dog sitting. He's still traumatized, eh? Joshua. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> What about you, David? So I've always had a big fondness for Great Pyrenees. Uh, ever since I was a kid, our next door neighbors had a pair of these enormous, fluffy white dogs that would come and often just sort of wander into our into our yard. And you know, it was always fun to play with them. In terms of personal dog stories, the only one I know very well is my sister's dog, and. That little mutt is about as adorable as they come, so you gotta love the pooches. Before we get started, I have to tell you that this podcast would not have been possible without the support of Rappaport Academy. Rappaport Academy launched just a few months ago, giving students the opportunity to learn all they need to know about the diamond industry. It's kind of like this podcast. But if the Rappaport Diamond Podcast has left you with a thirst for more knowledge about the diamond industry, go to rappaportacademy.com and sign up for the Fundamentals of Diamond Trading, your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. And don't forget to keep your eyes open because Fundamentals of Diamond Trading will soon be in Chinese. The holidays just seem to keep coming, but now we shift our focus from the West to the Sleeping Dragon of China. Chinese New Year's is upon us, and we are looking forward to the Year of the Dog. So, what makes the Lunar New Year such an important holiday for the trade? Uh, so, it's the equivalent of Christmas for the Chinese market. It's the main event of the year, the main event that people are, are buying gifts for. And with the Chinese and Hong Kong market having slumped in the last two or three years, and we've seen quite a big recovery in the last 12 months or so, or last 18 months, and there are very strong hopes that this year's Chinese New Year is going to um, give a big boost to the, uh, the diamond and the, the jewelry trade. Is the year of the dog different than previous Chinese New Years we've seen? Jewelers will be producing themed jewelry, no doubt, made to look like a, a dog and, and so forth. In terms of whether it's going to be any different, I think it, the, the consumer market has only improved in the last year or so. And I think Chow Tai Fook, who are one of the main uh, Hong Kong-based jewelers last year, they said their retail sales during the Chinese New Year period increased about 4%. Um, and I think there's probably strong hope that it's been going to be about the same this year. Avi? Maybe you could give us a little bit of background on what the past few years have looked like for the diamond industry in China. Well, I, I think, um, as, as Joshua mentioned, there's a fair bit of optimism for the coming Chinese New Year. It's because it's in the context of the slowdown that we saw from about 2013 um, through 2015. The year that we're ending was the year of the rooster. And we um, sort of had fun in the office with headlines saying that um, the Chinese market was waking up. It was a bit of a wake-up call for the industry And because we saw an increase in sales. But over the last decade, we saw from 2008 a tremendous um, boom in Chinese growth, as everyone knows, that it's been the growth story in the global economy. Um, and that's translated to the diamond and jewelry industry. So we enjoyed a period of double-digit growth um, in China and tremendous expansion of jewelry stores across the country into tier one, tier two, tier three cities. You know, a tier three city in, in China would be a massive um, city in its own right um, in anywhere else. And that fed into the demand within the diamond trade as um, the likes of Chao Tai Fook and Luke Fook were expanding across China. They needed diamonds to fill those stores. 
And then the growth slowed a bit in 2013. And at the same time, there was a new government that introduced a campaign against corruption, which affected luxury spending in the country and by default affected the diamond markets. But um, now consumers have acclimatized to that new reality and are not as embarrassed as before to spend on bling. And there's a new um, younger consumer that's coming into the market that's driving growth again. What did that slowdown mean for the rest of the world, what the rest of the global diamond industry? Well, quite naturally, that demand from China slowed as well. So um, so we didn't have the parallel strength in emerging markets, but there was at the same time, I think, thankfully, at least in the last year or so, fair stability and, and slight growth in the US, which is still the main market for diamond jewelry. It's interesting, over the last decade, we've kind of always had a strength in one or the other, being um, if the US market was strong, there was weakness in China, or if China was growing at, um, at a rapid rate, um, there was a recession in, uh, in the US in 2008. And I think what's feeding a bit of optimism in the market this year is that we're seeing a global expansion. Alongside growth, there's also been a pretty big shift in the consumer behavior between the older generation in China and millennials. So, Sonia, as our millennial whisperer, maybe you can give us some insight into how millennials are changing the way the industry works in China. That's actually, I think, quite interesting to say that the millennials' behavior to purchasing diamonds is changing. I think it's changing to diamonds, like they want to buy more. And as Avi was mentioning, the consumption of luxury goods is not shunned upon, but actually people want to show it. There's more conspicuous um, luxury. But actually, the Chinese millennials are quite similar to their Chinese parents. When they buy something, it's for an investment. It's actually they see the value, not just in terms of what you wear, but also in uh, what will grow in value as it goes. So that's also interesting. And I think that's why they're so interested in the big, big brands, the French brands that are very popular in China, a Cartier, is always rated as one of the most popular. That's why they work with a lot of local influencers. Cartier has implemented a very well-thought structure in China. So they work on the right channels, they work with the right people, and that's why they've been very successful. Uh, Bulgaria is also the Louis Vuitton that's part of LVMH as open an e-commerce platform. So the big Western luxury brands know that they have to have a presence in China. And the millennials, the Chinese millennials love these brands. They love the, the status it gives. They love the fact that it can be an investment as well for them. But I think that the brands that know how to attract to the millennials will speak to that more blingy, cool image. And you can see the, the influencers that work usually. They have no problem lavishing their wealth on social media. There's also a big demographic issue in China. We see a lot more men than women. Well, you have to thank the Chinese government policy of a few years back, I think, for that one. But it seems like the kind of thing that might chill the jewelry industry in China, having fewer women to wear jewelry as the primary wearers of jewelry. What kind of impact is it having? When we say fewer women, we're still talking about millions and millions and millions of women. <laughs> so I think that's also something we have to be quite aware of. So um, I was reading the other day, by 2020, there will be 647 million Chinese that use social media. 647 million. We're talking about a big, big proportion. And I think we had this conversation earlier. The Chinese women actually buy their own diamonds. They're very on target for the self-purchasing trend. They are highly educated. They have money. They travel almost six times a year abroad. So 
jury gives them status and power them. They don't wait for jury to be a, a romantic gift. That's a, an interesting point because the idea of giving an, a diamond engagement ring isn't necessarily entrenched in the Chinese culture, but it's something that, that I think it has potential to grow. And that's one of the aspects of, um, as you say, the lack of women in China as a result of that um, one-child policy. The Economist did a video piece that there's a shortage of 60 million brides in China. And what that's resulted in is that the men who are trying to woo those available women need to prove their value. And a big part of that is um, their financial means. And a big part of showing that financial means would be the through jewelry, through um, diamond engagement ring. So I would expect that um, although you might think that there are a lack of fulfilling a potential in China in terms of the amount of weddings there are, but I think I saw a number once that there are about 10 million weddings in China a year which we need to verify. <laughs> but um, but uh, that means that uh, the competition for women is great and um, men need to spend more money on, on their girls. Yeah, but that's good because the girls are doing it for themselves, I think. That's, that's the, <laughs> the Chinese independent yeah. woman, I think. Are so what you're saying is we don't need to worry about the Chinese bridal market. Well, some people do, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Mothers-in-law worry. There was a video on, on YouTube that was doing the rounds in the office. A guy had basically set up a, what do you call it, a dance mob? Um, there's a better Flesh word. mob. Flesh, Flesh mob, mob, that's the one. With you know, hundreds of people on a street in, I don't even know which city it was in China, to propose to his girlfriend. And he went through this whole dance and then got out the ring and uh, she said no because it was too small. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and the moral um, is never be part of a flesh mob. Definitely <laughs> yeah. don't, don't propose like that. <laughs> yeah. So just to backtrack a little bit, you mentioned a few foreign retailers having big success in China. What are they doing to break into that market? That's a great question, David, because they actually, as I was saying earlier with Cartier, they actually play with the local restrictions, actually, also in what you can share, how you can use the internet. The main channel for luxury brands is WeChat, so the jurors that actually got on it on time earlier know how to use it, are the ones that are reaping the rewards of that. And uh, the brands that were a bit slow in the process, for example, Harry Winston was a bit slow to the Chinese market, and this, their results were not so good. Now they, they caught up by the beginning they got taken over. Tiffany & Co. also are using it properly. As I was saying, Louis Vuitton, the LVMH brands as well are using WeChat. And I think also they work with local influencers. The Beers is working with a particular one who has a huge, huge audience and followers. So they're, they're using the, the same thing, but on a much bigger scale. Like I think the, the followers is like 47 million followers or something like this. So I think it's also um, worth noting that for some smaller retailers and, and jewelers and diamond tears, they might not actually necessarily have to be in China to catch the Chinese market because the tourist spending is such a, a big aspect of the Chinese consumer experience. I mean, we're seeing in the US, Macy's are doing um, Chinese New Year themed promotions. And so there is opportunity in the big shopping um, centers like New York and Paris, you know, across Europe and in Hong Kong particularly that there is a Chinese tourist that has been spending a lot of money in the last decade or so. It is true, just to qualify, that the government has been trying to encourage more spending 
inside China. And that's why we are seeing more spending, particularly amongst millennials, I think, in China in their domestic economy. The thing last year I was reading, last year is the first time that the domestic spent in luxury goods in China domestically was actually bigger than overseas. So mm. I think the, the measures taken by the government is... And also the fact that the brands are adapting to the local market. So. Yeah, and uh, the government is, is reducing the import duties. And I think also the move online has enabled that growth. One of the things that was encouraging spending outside of China is that um, prices for luxury brands in China are significantly higher than uh, in Paris um, and New York, believe it or not, and certainly Hong Kong. And that gap has, has narrowed a bit, which has again, encouraged um, domestic spending, but there is still that gap. So final thoughts. Do you think we should be bullish on China? Based on what we've seen in the last year, there is some um, reason for optimism. I think the local jewelers such as Chao Tai Fook, um, Luke Fook, Chao Sang Sang, they're opening stores again, which is an expression of confidence in China. And we're just getting a general um, positive feeling about um, the market there. I think this this year is is very interesting, and that we're going to look at new developments. And then, when particularly looking at you know which brands are going to do well and how they're going to work on, with the local market, and this is definitely a market we're looking at with uh, anticipation. And I think the year of the dog as well. On a jewelry lover note, it's actually I think it's a bit easier to wear jewelry with a nice little pooch than with a, a pig or a rooster. But I'll just for that one. I get to be more excited about the jewelry, the pictures of of jewelry coming with a nice little chihuahua things like this so for me i think it's going to be a good year yeah i think it will be good and hopefully that will um feed through to the regular diamond dealers that we speak to in uh, bourses that they'll uh, they'll see increased demand from china and uh, given that it's these days quite difficult to turn a profit as a diamond manufacturer or dealer hopefully um the return of the asian markets will help them so a happy chinese new year to one and all Our guest, Jennifer Hebner, just got back from a whirlwind tour of U.S. jewelry shows. And lucky for us, Joshua got a hold of this jet setter from her Philadelphia home. We're joined by Jennifer Hebner, acclaimed jewelry journalist and writer of a, a very popular blog and frequent contributor to Rappaport magazine. Jen, I understand you've just been traveling to Arizona for some jewelry shows. How was it all and uh, how are you feeling after all this traveling? Good morning here from Philadelphia, where I live. I just got back from the Tucson shows on Monday night, so I'm still still in recovery. It's a long time to be out there. I think I was out there for nine days for the – you start off at the Centurion Jewelry Show up in Scottsdale, which is a high-end finished jewelry show. And I stayed there for a couple days and then went down to Tucson for the American Gem Trade Association Tucson Gem Fair show, which is the most exciting fair, in, I think, all year, it's safe to say. A lot of people feel that way because you it's where designers and store owners who make a lot of custom, everyone descends upon AGTA in Tucson to shop for loose gems for the year. and. Wow. And miners and dealers come from all over the world and they bring their they bring rough, they bring cut and polish, they bring everything that they found throughout the year to this big international market located in Tucson. And designers and store owners who do custom, they come and shop 
and uh, bring these goodies home and make beautiful pieces out of them. By June, by the time we hit the Las Vegas shows, Couture and JCK, we'll see a lot of these pieces set into finished designs that will end up in stores uh, by holiday 2018. Now, there's a big emphasis, um, if I'm right, on colored stones. Was there anything that caught your attention? As far as colored stones, I mean, there's everything is there. AGTA is, and there are other shows, GJX is across the street, and there are a lot of shows happening in Tucson, but color is the emphasis for, for the Tucson shows. And one overarching theme for the fairs this year in terms of color were innovative cuts. And I even saw some of that at the Centurion in the finished goods. There were some artists there with proprietary cuts. And I think that's becoming a bigger theme for a lot of designers and for some store owners. Because the shopper who is purchasing goods at this level, the very high end of the market, they always want the newest, the most interesting things that they haven't seen before. And proprietary cuts do fall into that category. So if you can come up with your own cut that no one else has, then that's very appealing to a high-end buyer. How exactly does one go about navigating oneself when there's 42 shows going on in one city? I just get completely lost. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a very good show guide. It's like a telephone book thick show guide that you can pick up at AGTA. And then it's just from talking to colleagues and friends who have been attending the shows. I'm in the upper teens as far as the number of years that I've been going to the Tucson shows. And then over the years, you learn, you know, what vendors you like and where they exhibit. Some shows are just are just geared towards beaters. So that's all they have is glass beads and silver beads. But if you're beyond that in terms of your design skills, then you'll want to check out uh, AGTA, GJX. The Pueblo has a lot of loose stones. It's kind of a mix of exploration and then talking to friends and colleagues. I hear the Yermans made a rare appearance at the show this year. They did, which was very interesting. The JCK shows, JCK has a a Tucson fair, which they have a lot of artists with high-end finished goods there. They actually persuaded the Yermans to come out and give a rare public appearance. So it was invitation only. I was lucky enough to secure an invitation. So I was there in one of the front rows and got to ask them a few questions. It was really interesting to see them together and to hear them talk because you just don't you don't see them a lot now. I mean, everybody wants a piece of them because of, you know, how famous they are and how successful their business is. So it was interesting to be able to listen to them. For those who don't know, um, who are the Yermans and why is it such a surprise to see them in public? The Yermans are David and Sybil Yerman. They are founders of the famous David Yerman brand, the cable motif that everyone knows. We don't see them a lot just because they have a really thriving business and they're busy coming up with new designs every year. But somehow the JCK shows persuaded them to come out and talk to folks. So it was a packed house, maybe close to 100 people were in the room and and store owner, mix of store owners and some designers and um, some press, of course. So what was interesting about listening to them talk was some of the tips they gave. One of the tips that really was impactful to me was how they say police themselves as far as the aesthetic. If they see and they have close, you know, colleagues and friends who will be very honest with them and say, well, if they come up with a design idea that looks familiar, 
they'll be honest with each other and say, well, I saw that in someone else's line a year ago, or I saw something similar. It's very close to what so-and-so was doing. So they'll pull those pieces out of the line. And I think that's very important for young emerging designers to understand that even when you're David Yerman, who has been in business since, you know, the seventies, it has this thriving, uh, well-recognized aesthetic that he doesn't stop policing himself. He always does his homework, which is something that I have always urged designers to do. I understand it's not easy to do when you're a one person show, but it's very necessary to stay fresh and current and to be sure that your aesthetic is true to your own path and your your own signature style and does not in borrow from someone else's. So I was I was really interested to hear the, the Germans give that advice. And you see that in their products, that they're unique and they're different from anything else, which I guess is the same as unique. The cable is, you know, it's a centuries old symbol. So, I mean, everybody's seen the cable before Yerman adopted that as his signature style. But what is interesting about their use of it is is how true they are to it. They make that cable come alive each season in the subtlest of ways so that, you know, you can pick up a piece of their, one of the first pieces that he made in the 70s, and you can pair it nicely with something that he made yesterday. And because the signature style is consistent, so it might have today's works have a, a slightly modern twist or they'll reflect gemstones that are in favor today. But he's just been true to his style for all these years. And that's one of the things that makes him so successful. Mm. Looking more broadly, how was the market sentiment at the shows? It seems there's been uh, quite a significant improvement uh, in the U.S. market last year and the holiday sales were very good. How did people feel? I think the overarching theme of both of the loose shows and the finished shows were quality over quantity. So maybe traffic overall was not as robust as in years past, but the buyers who were there were very serious and they were placing large orders. Do people feel there were too many trade shows these days? I think the designers definitely feel that way. Um, But, But they still go. Well, some of them do. I mean, I think what's happening in in the designer set, they're really taking a hard look at the shows because the pattern has been for a number of years now. Obviously, many designers want to sell to the trade. They want to sell to stores, but it's been frustrating for them because the trend among stores today is they ask for consignment. Many of them, not all, but many of them. So as an artist, how can you pay your bills if no one wants to pay you outright for your jewelry? So that's a frustration. And I see a lot of designers pulling back from trade shows and selling direct to consumer because they have bills to pay like all of us. That's not necessarily, you know, an easier path, but at least when somebody wants to buy something, you know, the transaction has to occur and they're able to recoup some of the money spent to to design lines. Now, I do interview a lot of retailers throughout the year for different types of stories. And I think that the retailers definitely feel like there are a lot of shows. They're being pulled in so many different directions, the retailers. Everybody wants them to come to their show. They want every designer wants them to stop by their booth. So there are a great deal of shows now. I think that both sides, the artist and the retailer, are faced with. So it's tough to make a choice. You know, you can't attend every show, but the Tucson or the Arizona fairs 
you know, especially if you're doing any kind of custom work, you'll go to the loose shows in Tucson because that's where you really get the best selection of, of stones for the year and you see what comes to market. To talk about the most serious matters, I, I gather you're um, a big lover of dogs. We've been talking in the studio in honor of Chinese New Year and the year of the dog about our favorite dogs and favorite dog moments. Do you have a, a favorite dog moment? <laughs> Every day there's a new one because I've got two dogs. I'm staring at them right now on the sofa um, across from me. We have a, a female golden retriever named Emma, and then we have a black lab shepherd mix, a stray we adopted, who uh, his name is Beastie. So every day there's a new dog moment um, <laughs> in our house. Yeah, we're big dog lovers here. Well, uh, thank you very much, Jen. It's great to have you on the show and uh, enjoy your travels. Okay, thanks for having me. Thank you. Speaking of shows, are you planning on going to the Hong Kong International Diamond, Gem, and Pearl Fair going on from February 27th through March 3rd at the Asia World Expo? Then come join Rappaport at our booth. You can find us at 2U10. The RapNet team will be there to meet and greet. And if you're lucky, you might just catch the inimitable Avi Kravitz looking for the latest in diamond and jewelry industry news. Hope to see you there. Before he heads off to Hong Kong, Avi was on the scene at the International Diamond Week in Israel. So Avi, tell us what it was like in the Israeli bourse. Thanks, David. The Israel Diamond Exchange held its annual International Diamond Week amid much fanfare in the bourse, even if it has little effect on the global trade. It's important to recognize that these Borsa events are different to the major trade shows that are held, for example, in Hong Kong and Las Vegas. And we're certainly looking forward to the Hong Kong show at the end of February to provide a better gauge of the market. But these Borsa events serve to bring people out of their offices and back onto the trading floor, and at the same time provide an opportunity for some foreign buyers to meet the local trade and look for goods. In that sense, the event was well-timed as it occurs after the holiday season and before the Hong Kong show. So trading was expectantly steady, while there has been a relatively positive feel about the market in general since the beginning of the year. And there was a good feeling about the Diamond Week, with buyers from the US, India and China all noticed on the trading floor. Perhaps more importantly, the Diamond Week also provides an opportunity for Israel to showcase some of the programs it has in the works. And there were certainly some interesting initiatives the Borsa launched during the week, particularly, believe it or not, in the tech space. While diamonds have been a traditional backbone of the Israeli economy for decades, the country has emerged in the last 20 years as a leader in tech innovation, affectionately become known as the startup nation. And so why not mesh the two worlds, as the Borsa believes Israeli tech can play a role to lead the global industry forward? In that spirit, the Borsa opened its innovation center to house startup companies working on diamond-related tech. Its first tenant is Carrots.io, which has been working on a diamond-backed cryptocurrency that was unveiled during the show. And the exchange expects in the next few months to have another four companies working in the, from the space in areas ranging from robotics to modernizing manufacturing, fintech, and marketing. The government has backed the project, and as the chief scientist, Dr. Amy Applebaum, said at the opening, Israel knows how to do business the old way, as traders, and it's a diamond industry that is evidence of that. But it also knows how to innovate, so it makes sense to marry the two. 
So that's something we took out of the Diamond Week, and we expect to see that develop in the coming months. Thanks a lot, Avi. That was a really interesting bit of news out of Israel. And I know that since the last podcast, a lot of interesting stories have come across your desks and have made it onto Diamonds.net. As you sniffed out the news, what struck you as the most interesting story of the past month? So whenever there's large diamonds, our readers are interested. And the last month I had a good example of that, which was um, a 910-carat diamond that Gem Diamonds found at their mine, the Letseng mine in Lesotho, which I believe is the American pronunciation, or Lesotho, which is the British pronunciation. How do they say it locally? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's a very good question. Probably neither of those. It was uh, 910 carats, a rough diamond. It is the fifth diamond known to man, although people often say that these diamonds are the fifth diamond in history or the fifth diamond ever, but uh, no doubt there are millions of diamonds lying underground that no one's found uh, that are far bigger. Um, and it uh, is... <laughs> it's, it's, is expected, as with a lot of these large diamonds, to sell for several millions of dollars. And uh, Lawrence Graf, who owns 15% of Gem Diamonds, the company that found it, has bought a lot of their previous large diamonds, such as the Lesotho or the Lesotho Promise, and uh, also famously bought the Lesedi La Rona last year for 53 million. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up buying this one. And uh, that was one of our most read stories of the month. Fascinating, and I look forward to seeing what becomes of that big diamond. So, Avi, what came across your desk? Well, when we when we think about um, stories that have a practical impact on our readers, a lot of our um, followers are in India, and the finance minister gave his budget speech in late January or early February, and surprisingly raised the import duty on polished diamonds from 2.5% to 5%, which um, surprised many in the trade. It's not the first time that the government has done this, but it was kind of viewed in a negative light um, amongst the trade. It also comes in the wake of the GST, um, the goods and services tax overhaul in India, and also, of course, there was a demonetization. So the government's been introducing a lot of bureaucratic changes in in India, but this is one that really affects the trade and is in line with its um, Make in India policy. The Indian government's being encouraging locals to buy local. And so it encourages the big manufacturing industry there to supply goods to the local jewelry industry. But it will have an effect because the local dealers also source goods from other centers such as Israel, such as um, Antwerp, New York, um, Hong Kong, etc. Often for in the recycled market, they're um, often buying goods from jewelers or jewelers that are closing out um, shop or from the pawnbrokers in in the US, for example, and bringing those goods back to India to recut. But that's going to make it a lot more expensive now for them. So in terms of the stories that um, had a practical effect or impact on the trade, I would say that one sort of stood out for us, for me anyway. Well, I guess we can hope that it will bolster the trade in India or at least the manufacturers in India and hopefully create a good market for them to sell into. And Sonia, what fascinating tales crossed your desk? It's not so much a tell that the release of a terminology guideline it sounds a bit boring when I say it like that. But um, actually, very interestingly, Jennifer Hibner, who um, 
Joshua has interviewed earlier on this podcast, wrote an article on lab-grown, I should say, sorry, 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 laboratory-grown diamonds. Not Labrador. <laughs> laboratory, <yeah. laughs> I'll get a bit confused with the dog scene of this uh, podcast. Let's say I'm going to call them synthetic because that's much easier. And actually, Jen, our copy editor, Rachel, who's wonderful, and I had a um, vivid conversation about terminology for the article that Jen wrote. And as we were having this conversation, nine of the leading diamond industry organizations, they're all acronyms, so I'm just going to make it very short and just to quote a few. The AWDC, it's Antwerp, DPA, the GJEPC, the CIBJO, And, uh, Can you sing this as a song? <laughs> I could as well if you want. <laughs> the WDC and the WFDP, and I'm sorry for the one I forgot from the list. I, it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're talking about respectable industry organizations. They released this guideline, which I think is very interesting because we had this conversation, how do you call synthetic? And some people don't want to use the word synthetic. Some people prefer man-created, man-made, cultured diamond, created diamonds. So to create clarity, these organizations are limiting the use to synthetic, laboratory-grown and laboratory-created. They don't like abbreviations such as lab-grown and lab-created. That's causing a lot of trouble for our editing purposes. <laughs> so um, Rachel, our copy editor, and I have decided to use it from time to time, but we support the initiative anyway. And they're obviously against anything that says that synthetic are real, genuine, precious, authentic, natural. This is something that, you know, they really did it to educate the retailers because they get a lot of questions from people. And I think there's a lot of confusion about man-made As we say, you know, we, we think that actually diamonds are coming from the earth and man created and cultured. And I think that was creating a lot of confusion for retailers. So that's good that they have these clear guidelines. Also got a lot of hits on our website because I think people are craving this type of clarity. Well, I think also a big takeaway there was that if you just refer to a diamond that is referring to a natural diamond, so there shouldn't be any confusion that a diamond might be possibly referring to a synthetic diamond. That's true, but I think for very often, from our point of view as editorial people who try to create a distinction between two types of diamond, if we have to actually explain it, you know, we sometimes need to use laboratory-grown diamonds and natural diamonds. So I hope I'm not going to get a red flag or <laughs> I don't know from, the, from these nine associations. Well, can we call them non-natural diamonds? No, we can't. Do we have a beeper or something? No. Uh -uh. Nah, All good right. one. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Sonia. I'll keep that in mind when I am talking about synthetic laboratory-created diamonds. And thank you very much for joining today. Thanks, David. That was a pleasure. Avi, as always, a pleasure. Thanks, David. It was fun as ever. And Joshua, you had us in stitches from the beginning to the end. Thanks. It was good to be very slightly included. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and get you in more for the next one good to have clarity on that <laughs> thanks for bringing color to the to the podcast Joshua. <laughs> we could go on all day <laughs> thanks for joining us if you enjoyed this and are looking for more diamond and jewelry industry news and information check out the recently released Rappaport Research Report Don't miss this month's issue of Rappaport Magazine, where we cover the disruptor-in-chief himself, President Donald Trump. 
And if you are interested in the future of gemology tech, then don't miss the Rappaport Special Supplement sponsored by Serene Technologies, Technology Meets Gemology. For Avi, Joshua, Sonia, and the whole Rappaport team, we wish you a very happy Chinese New Year.